Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. This is what the Word of God says. Remember those that led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. That's the verse that we're going to look at today. Let's pray together. Father, there are times when the cry of our heart is that we want to be a pleasing sacrifice to you. And yet, Lord, at times it's difficult and hard to be an offering that pleases you, to pour our life out in your service, as it were. The Apostle Paul says that we would be poured out on the service of the church and to be poured out as an offering for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask and pray that you would strengthen us, that you would give us that resolve that when our flesh does not want to be obedient, it doesn't want to be pleasing, it doesn't want to be that fragrant aroma in your sight, I pray that you would remind us of the beauty of holiness, that you would remind us of the beauty of walking in truth. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by your grace. We recognize and we confess openly before you that we are inadequate, that we are insufficient. And left to our own devices, Lord, we are weak. We have no strength. And as our Lord Jesus told us, Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Help us, O God. Strengthen us by Your sovereign grace. Give us the power of Your Spirit to live lives that are worthy for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, this passage uh, reminds us of some very important uh, principles for the church. And so I've decided to entitle this message, The Value of Biblical Leadership. Nothing novel, nothing extraordinary, just radically ordinary. The Value of Biblical Leadership. Uh, This is a, obviously this is a a really precious text for me uh, as a pastor to know that the Word of God gives us very clear, unambiguous instruction and wisdom and guidance as to what is biblical leadership all about. And so I want to suggest to us the following characteristics that of any church, of any leadership, of any body, of any true ecclesiology, if it is going to fall into the category of being a true biblical uh, leadership, it's going to have to provide the following things. Number one, structure. Number two, doctrine. Number three, virtue, and last of all, example, example. Those are the four elements that we're going to look at here today. Number one, then, as we just kind of go through the list, um, is that biblical leadership provides structure. Let's be clear. Today, in, in, just in our culture, we really live in the midst of a, of a radical spirit of anti-institutionalism an anti-authoritarian sort of postmodernism that nobody wants to be under anybody's authority. 
Nobody wants to be under submission to anything. Everybody wants to live according to the dictates of their own heart, their own mind. This is nothing new. This is nothing novel. Uh, in the book of Judges, we're told that everyone was seeking to do what was right in their own eyes. And we saw the disastrous effects of that. Well, likewise, today, there is this, um, there is this rebellious, sort of a strident streak against biblical ecclesiology. People seek to rebel against the structure that the Bible clearly lays out for us. Um, It is very frequent that I talk to people that do not recognize the authority of the local church or any church. Just talking with a young man this, uh, this past week who told me, I don't need to go to a church because after all, and he looks around, we are the church. Um, that type of attitude, that sort of reckless handling of the whole concept of ecclesiology is really everywhere. It's, it's actually rare and very, very unique. It's actually more of a, of a rarity today uh, to find people that love the church, that love structure, that love authority, that love the institution of the local church. That is what's rare today. But this uh, passage here is one of those texts really in league with another series of texts in the Bible that just doesn't leave any room for that. Uh, This exhortation is very basic. Uh, He starts out and he says, Remember those who led you. Think of that. Uh, This is an imperative to remember something valuable, uh, something that is uh, needful for the Christian. And he's telling them to recall the leadership of past leaders. And we'll get to that. But probably as we seek to kind of identify in the book of Hebrews, who is the author talking about when he says, remember those that led you? Who does he have in mind? Well, turn with me to chapter 2 of Hebrews because I think there we're thinking of the same people. I think there you kind of have the same um, group that's being referred to. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? After, speaking about that salvation, it was first spoken through the Lord, Jesus. It was confirmed to us, uh, the author and the audience of Hebrews, By those who heard, probably a reference to the apostles. God was also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So probably the author of Hebrews here has in mind that group of leaders that had initially conveyed the gospel message to the Hebrews. It is those that brought the first gospel to them, that, that, that brought as missionaries, brought the gospel, as it were, to, these group, uh, to this group of believers. But what does this show us? I think the relationship here between leaders and the congregation, I think, implies several very important things. And really, if you would, there's kind of an overarching principle, and this is what it is, is that in the church there is an over and under relationship that makes up true biblical ecclesiology. And it stresses several things. Let me begin, as we're going to have a lot of items today, but number one, what it stresses is this. It shows the responsibility of the church to have a regard for its leaders. 
Um, I remember the very first sermon I ever preached was uh, in this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 13, and it was verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. And the rationale was that the pastors had asked me to preach this because they said, well, it's obviously somebody other than the pastor that's saying this. So uh, they said, we want to have somebody other than the pastor saying these things to our congregation. I said, okay, fair enough. But uh, today I don't have that luxury. It is me, and I will be sharing these things. And I delight in it because it's, it's, it's really um, a safeguard for us. All of the things that we're going to be talking about today are safety for our church, for you, for our membership, for your soul, for your family. It's beautiful, really, if you think about it. But again, it stresses the re- re- responsibility for the church to have regard. Remember, you see that exhortation there is to recall, to bring to mind the value of these leaders that had led them. Sadly, today, many people in the church view their pastor in a very um, sub-biblical way. I guess that's, a easy, that's the polite way of putting it. The reality is that for many, a pastor is nothing more than just a life coach. He's a comedian or a financial advisor, an entrepreneur, a CEO of an organization, even a celebrity, or he's nothing more than just the preacher boy that the deacons control. For some, the pastor is the errand boy. He runs around doing everything for everybody. But pastors really have an impossible task, according to the Bible. Um, I looked over... Uh, the scriptures, because I've, I've referred to this before, but when it comes to the government of the church, every aspect, every formal aspect of church government is laid at the foot of the elder, of the pastor. Uh, for example, we are told that First Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we're told that the concept of managing is something that the pastor has to do. He has to manage the church of God, just like he has to manage his own house. He also has to rule the congregation. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. He rules the congregation, which is another technical term for engaging in the government oversight of the whole church. Also, we're told that uh, an elder is also an episkopos. That Greek word means overseer. In other words, he looks after the well-being, the spiritual well-being of everyone in the congregation. His duty is to oversee people's souls look back to verse 17 right here in hebrews it says obey your leaders and submit to them watch this for they keep watch over your souls as those that will have to give an account and that language of account means that the responsibility ultimately of the health and purity of any local church is going to be laid at the foot of the pastors think about that sometimes i wish i was a deacon be honest with you Because I understand, just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we will appear before the throne of God. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we have to, as elders, as as pastors, overseers, by the way, all those three uh, Greek words are synonymous in the Bible. Overseer, episkopos, elder, presbyteros, pastor, poimen. All of those Greek words are synonymous in the Bible. You see that interchangeability in Acts chapter 20. Just as an aside. But, according to this, we as the leader of the church, 
We provide structure by the way that we equip the church. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. I just want to read to you that it is the duty of any biblical leader, and therefore biblical leadership, that we systematically equip the local church. That's why in our church, folks, we have such an emphasis on doctrine, on teaching, on didactic studies, on systematic theology, on biblical theology, on practical theology, and every other ology. Because it's all about this. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim Him. Uh, and what's the meaning of that? This is how it, or, or, or how do you do that? Uh, he says here, admonishing every man. It's not just about imparting information. It's also about admonition. We have to exhort. Uh, as Paul will go on to tell Timothy, right? Rebuke and exhort. He tells him these things. Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. And I love the... I love the, the uh, qualification there. With all wisdom, I, that to me implies an element of pastoral care. It's not just that anyone is sort of able to convey information back and forth to the church in this way. Paul is speaking of a specific type of discipleship, one that includes sagacity. In other words, that you do it with a wise hand, that you have a balance, that you have a... That, that, that you have a temperament that is able to wisely instruct your listeners. He says, so that we may present every man complete. And that word complete there speaks of the spiritual maturity of the believer. We are called to honor pastors and elders who keep watch over our souls. And this is what I mean that the first element of this is that there's a regard for the leaders. I'm so thankful to be in a church where that's true. Uh, I can't tell you, and Pastor Lynn would agree with this, I can't tell you how blessed I am uh, with the type of reception and, and the type of blessing uh, that we receive week in and week out at Heritage Grace. We are blessed. We are truly blessed here. But nevertheless, that is what the church is called to do. It is called to give double honor to those that labor hard in preaching and teaching. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 19. We are called to submit to the God-given authority of the elders because we know that they are trying to provide healthy biblical structure to the church. That's what I mean by structure. Uh, if you talk to people that say, well, I don't really go to church or whatever... Um, or they said, just say, you know, yeah, I kind of, you know, once in a while I, I visit a church. Just ask them, who's your pastor? Does he have a name? I've actually had people say, oh, it's, uh, what's his name? Wow. Well, I hope you know my name. <laughs> because that shows a complete disregard for the pastor when you don't have familiarity there. Remember what the pastor's supposed to be? He's supposed to be a shepherd, uh, he's supposed to be somebody that, con- that is concerned and cares for your well-being. And that is not a role that just can be sidestepped. That's not just a role that can be discarded. Turn with me to the book of Titus. In Titus, the Apostle Paul tells Titus, Titus chapter 2, listen to this thing. After he gives him instruction, detailed instruction about what he's supposed to preach and teach. Then he says in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove, watch this, with all authority, let no one disregard you. You see that there? 
Now, no one can just sidestep the authority of the eldership. Very, very important. Now, there's a second element here. Not only does this over-under relationship that provides the structure for the church, not only does it imply that we have to have a regard for leaders, but it also shows the accessibility of the leadership to the flock. Notice what it says, and, and, and I am... Uh, I'm micromanaging this verse because I just want to go bit by bit because I think it is packed with rich insight if we just take our time, breathe, and look at the text. It says here also, remember those that led you. So in other words, it implies that somebody was accessible to the flock, that this was someone who was leading the church. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that I never, ever in my ministry ever want to get to the point where I am no longer accessible to you. That the service is over and somebody whisks me off to the side somewhere and you don't see me till next week. I don't want that kind of Christianity. I don't want that kind of pastoral ministry. Never have. Um, I want to get down with the people. I want to chill out with you guys. I I want to hang with you. I I do. I want to listen to you. I want to be here. I want to fellowship. Where are those pastors going anyway? The restaurant can wait. What I'm saying is that If you look at Jesus, Jesus gave every fiber of his being to the flock. He he, he walked in the midst of the multitudes of thousands of people. He walked in the midst of of, of multitudes. Everyone wanted a little piece of flesh. (laughs) He gave them himself. In other words, he was fully accessible. And make no mistake, Jesus is the prototypical leader. He is the prototype of all leadership. That's why Paul has to be very careful to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Because even Paul, as great as Paul the Apostle was, he understood that he was just a a copy. He was just just another, he was was an under-shepherd of the true shepherd. And so that is what we all should seek to model our ministry after. Leaders have to be accessible Speaking of Paul, God used him undeniably. He became for us, even as God told him that he would be, he became the pattern of all those who would believe after him in so many different ways. And he was careful how he built, remember? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he called himself a master builder. In other words, Paul was like, a, uh, he was like an architect that was building an edifice, he was, he was building a structure, uh, an edifice, the church, a spiritual building. And he wanted to make sure that every stone was precious and was placed in the right place. He didn't want the plumb line to be off. And therefore, he warns future ministers everyone must watch how he builds. Because if you don't use good material, it will burn on that day. Think about that. It also shows the manner of the leadership. He is leading a flock. A shepherd was someone that cared deeply for the sheep. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Maybe Thessalonians uniquely more than any other letter or letters 
in the, in the New Testament conveys to us the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. Uh, chapter 1 and 2 is a masterpiece of pastoral theology. Beginning in verse 5, what does he say? He says, For we never came with flattering speech. He says the same thing in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2. He says, As you know, nor as, uh, nor as a pretext for greed, God is witness. And uh, Paul often laid himself bare before the a size of God. In other words, the judgment of God, the scrutiny of God. He knew the divine eye of God was upon his ministry and he was willing and able to lay it before God in his conscience. Nor did we seek glory for men, from men, either from you or from others, even though as an apostle of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Look at that. What he's saying is that think about it. We were Christ's apostles. If anyone had authority, if anybody had the ability to push his weight around, it was the apostle Paul and the apostles, but they did not do that. Think about the self-control, the restraint, the humility But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. We had such a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you have become very dear to us. I fear for the pastor that doesn't have this kind of affectionate um, uh, sort of relationship with his flock. Uh, that there's no affection, there's no, there's no emotional attachment, that there's no real concern, that it's just sort of a business arrangement, so that every, every service is just kind of a, a, of a cold, stale checking in and checking out. I don't think so. That's not true biblical ecclesiology. Third, it also shows us that the nature of the relationship between overseer and congregant, the over-under relationship, is mainly spiritual. That's important. Um, That is to say that of everything that we can focus on in the local church, the pastor in the church and the members of the church have an accountability to each other that maintains a focus on spiritual things, spiritual fellowship, spiritual ministry. That's what we're here for. I only say this because churches often become about doing life together and living in community. These are, these are slogans that can be either good or bad. I mean, what do you mean doing life together? Okay, I, I hope what you mean by that is that we're living the Christian life together. <laughs> I hope that what you mean by that is that living in community, we are living in the community of saints together, right? I've even heard some say that, 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 that why can't we just get together for non-spiritual things? Why can't we just do other things? My dear friends, how does that square against 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31? Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You don't leave God at the doorstep. You don't, leave, you don't check God at the door on the way to recreation or entertainment or, you know, going out to eat or whatever. We should do life together, but we should do eternal life together. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, verse 7 here. 
is giving us a reminder that we need a biblical structure for our souls to operate within a proper ecosystem of ecclesiology. See, we're meant to live in certain parameters in the Christian faith. We have pastors, we have deacons, we have church membership, we have church discipline, we have ordinances, we have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, we have preaching, we have teaching, we sing songs. This is the environment that God has put us into. And biblical leadership maintains the structure of all of it. Uh, this is obviously a sermon highlighting the importance of the local church. I, let, me, let me read to you a proverb that carries within it deep wisdom for anybody that has an anti-institutional streak in their soul. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, He who separates himself or isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Think about that. So somebody that is unwilling to come under the structure of a local church, what is that person doing but isolating themselves and, 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 and elevating their own personal thoughts? That's not what we're called to do. We're called to humbly submit to one another in the fear of Christ. The third thing is this. Or the second thing, excuse me, leaders, biblical leadership doesn't just provide structure, it provides doctrine. Now you know I can't wait to preach on this. Because this is just, this is just knock it out of the park preaching, right? Because this is what I do. Because this is what I want to do. This is what I'm called to do. But forget that. This is what biblical leadership does. And of course, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I told my wife the other night, we had a rough week, and I told her as I was uh, heading towards my study, I said, no matter what, I just reminded her, and I looked at her like, right? No matter what, the sermon still has to be written. No matter what. No matter what, the primacy of theology and doctrine for the pastor has to be maintained. No matter what's going on. The world could be burning around you. Everything could be falling apart. People's lives can be in shambles. And guess what? Like John MacArthur says, you still have the tyranny of Sunday hanging over you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I solemnly charge you. When Paul says that, what he's saying is, prepare to be reverent about what we're about to say here. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. What an invocation. And by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. That's the imperative. Be ready in season and out of season. And what that literally means is be ready when it's convenient and not convenient. Or as somebody once put it so eloquently, be ready when you feel like going to church and when you don't feel like going to church. When you look forward to going to church, this is to the pastor, when you look forward to going to church that day and when you dread going to church, preach the word. That's your job. That's your job. Uh, the pastor is a slave. Um, I'm connected to a ball and chain. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm chained, I'm imprisoned to this pulpit. 
that's my whole, I know this is an overspeak, but that's the sum total of my existence in the ministry is to do this, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. Watch this now, 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 before you run out the door. He says, Paul, so careful with great patience. In other words, you can't haul off on the sheep. In other words, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, he says that we don't lord it over you but we are workers with you for your joy. That's the whole purpose of it. With patience and with instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. So what's the necessity for these leaders to preach sound doctrine is because the time is coming and now is, brethren, right? Where people, not only do they not endure sound doctrine, they hate sound doctrine. They've become like the people Jeremiah spoke to. They, they, they want false priests and false prophecies and they love to have it that way. It's sad and it's sickening. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires that will turn away the ears from the truth and they will turn aside the myths. Notice that. It's never just stop listening to the truth. It never, ever ends there. It's, 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 it's that the truth is blocked out. The truth is not only set aside, but then there's another, there's another course of action. There is a willful coming under heresy. That's why... True biblical leadership has to provide sound doctrine. No matter how many times you say, I was listening to Bruce Ware, he was preaching over at Countryside with our friend Tom Pennington, and he, and he was teaching the, the, the church, he was tell, teaching them some uh, basic fundamental doctrine. He says, Look, I know you're tired. I know you might feel like we're going over this again. And he says, But you need it. We need it. What did Peter say? To remind you is a safeguard. We need to be constantly reminded of these things for myriad of reasons. I was so sick and tired of talking about Eastern Orthodoxy. I never wanted to talk about that heresy ever again until the Bible answer man converts to Eastern Orthodoxy. And now I've got to go dig up all my resources again. To remember why Eastern Orthodoxy undermines the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that puts you in an anathema condition. Never wanted to go back to that subject. I have to. Why? Because of this verse right here. They won't endure sound doctrine. We can stay on doctrine all day. But there's more. Biblical leadership also provides virtue. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 13. It says they led you. It says that they spoke the word of God to you. They provided sound doctrine. And then there's another admonition. It says considering the result of their conduct imitate their faith. So in consideration of their conduct, what the, uh, what the author is saying is that you have, a, you have an ability to look at the whole life that has been lived out in front of you. Now, this is what's interesting, is the way the grammar works in that clause, considering the result of their conduct, seems to imply that the course of their ministry has been finished. 
Very interesting. So this is someone who had led them previously and now they're able to look at the total life, look at the total ministry. It would basically be as if John MacArthur were to drop dead tomorrow. Lord, I hope that doesn't happen for our sake. Not for his because he'd be a lot happier than all of us. But we'd be able to look back on MacArthur's life and look at the panoramic of his ministry. Look at the scope of it. Consider, as it says here, the result of their conduct. That Greek word there just, just speaks of their manner of life, their way of life, the way they conducted their life, the way they led their life. We'll be able to look at all of it, and that's what we're supposed to do. F.F. F. Bruce says this. He says, The reference seems to be rather to those who led them in earlier days and have now completed their service. The whole course of their lives from start to finish now lies before the disciples and the followers for review and for imitation. This is what Paul means by following him as he follows Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 because Paul uniquely modeled this and gave us so much biblical revelation on it. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Some precious, precious territory here. Beginning in verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. The things, and then notice how he goes from that to his own example of those things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. If this does refer mainly to those who have finished their course, then we have here a call to engage in biography, to look back, You ever do that? Whose biography are you reading right now? I'm reading a couple. I'm reading a biography on Jonathan Edwards right now. And I'm reading a biography on J.C. Ryle right now. Uh, Just taking my time. I'm not in any rush. I'm just trying to pick out precious things out of their lives. Whose biography are you reading right now? Look back to men and women of old. Look at pastors and missionaries. Look at martyrs and people who lived a lifetime of faithful service and see what good can you get out of their conduct. What are the examples? Such examples help us, don't they? It's so helpful to know that great Baptist preachers like Adoniram Judson had nervous breakdowns that sunk into depression as he did at one point in his life, burning all of his writings. Only one book survived that depression. It's so good to know that Charles Spurgeon would get depressed and would need to take a nice cold walk on the beach to try to get over it. It's so good to know that Spurgeon at times was so depressed in the ministry that all he could do was weep on the lap of his wife. This is good for us to be able to go to others, uh, not only example, but to be able to exploit their weakness, the weakness of their weakness. These are the things that we need to do. It It reminds us that God is in the business of using weak things. That God is in the business of using clay pots 
and filling them with treasure. That God is in the business of using those things, as Paul says, that have been regarded as the scum of the world. So that He alone will get the glory. That really is what Hebrews 11 was all about. Looking back at that whole litany of faith. So that we see the glory of God displayed in the the weary, weak pilgrims that were sojourning like exiles on the earth under the vexation of the present evil age. Even as we are, brothers and sisters. Even as we are. Because just like them, we are headed towards our own heavenly country. Finally, therefore, leaders provide virtue and then closely related to that, leaders also provide example. This is another exhortation. So now notice, he gives them several exhortations. Remember, consider, and then imitate, right? So the first thing is, if you don't, if you don't, Take the responsibility upon yourself to recall the example of leadership, to recall the leaders that led you, then you will never be able to contemplate or to consider their conduct. And if you don't carefully consider their conduct, how are you going to imitate it? So there's a logical intensification and progression to the thought. Remember, consider, imitate. That's, the, that's what the author wants from us. That's the process that we should pursue. And on top of this, oh, I love the wisdom of this. And this is what I mean by going slow. He says what? Imitate their faith. Well, not only are we called to imitate, that plays a personal responsibility on us, that when we see good godly conduct, guess what? That makes us, that makes us accountable and we are all of a sudden obligated to imitate that godly conduct. Don't just stand in awe of it. Don't just stand in appreciation of it. That's not what the author said. He didn't say just consider their conduct and stand back as a spectator and say, oh, wasn't that great? Spurgeon was a neat guy. No, as much as is possible with you, imitate that person as far as their conduct aligns with Scripture. So long as they follow Christ, as Paul says, then you can engage in memeomai, imitation. Um, I'll do, um, do yourself a service. Go to the Bible with a concordance. You can do this online now. And just type in imitation in the Bible. And find everywhere where the Bible tells you to imitate somebody. Follow the example of somebody. It's amazing. It's a whole systematic theology of imitation. We are, in a sense, supposed to be copycats. No, don't imitate my personality. Don't imitate this person's personality. Don't imitate the inflection of their voice. No, you, you laugh, but I've been places where like, he sounds just like him. Uh, anyway, it's like a whole culture. Everybody sounds the same. It's not that we're trying to copy each other's personalities as much as we're trying to emulate the virtue in the person. That's what's important. So I want to highlight three aspects because look at, the, look at the proper object of this imitation. We are to imitate their faith. There could have been nothing more powerful than that word, pistine, that he chose imitate their faith. He didn't say just imitate their mind, imitate their theology, uh, imitate their reputation. He says imitate the most potent thing of all, which is their faith. And, and when, when he says faith, how do we interpret that? 
Understand that faith is a multifaceted thing because it implies several things about the person. And really, what is the nature of faith? Well, I want to focus on a few things here. It highlights the value of biblical leadership by these things because by imitating their faith, we imitate their obedience. Faith implies obedience. Uh, in, 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 in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, uh, the Apostle Paul says that, that, that um, obedience flows from faith, right? He speaks of the obedience of faith. And there, I believe it's a subjective genitive that says obedience comes out of faith. It is born out of genuine saving faith. Matter of fact, in the book of Romans He goes on to declare the faith of the church in chapter 1, verse 8. And in chapter 16, verse 19, he goes on to talk about the obedience of the church. In other words, these are parallels. And the book of Romans does this over and over and over again, where faith and obedience, faith and obedience, faith and obedience are put in synonymous parallel to each other. In other words, you're going to see someone's faith by their obedience. Isn't that what James says? Faith without works is dead. And Paul modeled this for the church. He was the example of this. Turn back to Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, just for an example. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. What precious, precious words are left behind for us here. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. That Greek word, tupas, it's like a type, it's like an imprint of their life. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Uh, what's, uh, you know, what's real popular today? Well, let's just throw caution to the wind. Being undisciplined, being radical, being sort of postmodern and just anything goes. Complete opposite. The Apostle Paul lived a life of disciplined obedience. He says that he was not in undisciplined manner, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Notice that the, the nature of his faith was such that he took his own advice. Because in Galatians chapter 6, he tells the believers, every man must bear his own load. In other words, be responsible to the point where someone else in the church doesn't have to take care of you. As much as it's possible for you. We didn't eat anybody else's bread. We paid it for ourselves, he says. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden on any of you. Not because we did not have the right to do this. In other words, because he was doing, he was laboring in the gospel, he actually had the right to be financially remunerated, but he did not choose to take advantage of that right. But in order to offer ourselves, watch this, as a model for you so that you would would follow our example. In other words, what he's saying is we forwent our right so that we would show you what selfless sacrifice and selfless obedience in the gospel looks like. Not just obedience, but we can also say that imitating the faith of leadership entails imitating their dependency because that's what faith entails faith entails a total dependence and a total trust in god turn with me to second corinthians chapter one i think one of the reasons why the why god used the apostle paul so much is that because 
Paul so often backed up his words with his life. He didn't just say it. He didn't just prescribe it. He didn't just preach it. He lived it, man. And he lived it to the point where it cost him. I think too much today for us, following Christ doesn't cost us very much. But for, for Paul, it cost him everything. Uh, look at uh, what he says here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came upon us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Now, he uses two words, excessive and beyond. In other words, what he's saying is that this, 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 this transcended any human ability to cope with it, right? So that we despaired even of life. More than that, indeed, he had the sentence of death within him. He says, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, here's the all-important purpose clause in this verse, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. How did he do that? By faith. That's it. By faith. And by faith, you and I can be put in impossible positions. Positions that there is no other resource. We have exhausted all other rational resources. We have exhausted exhausted all other medical resources. We have exhausted all other human comforts, whatever they may be. And God puts us in a position where, oh God, I am, I am, I am completely dependent upon you and you alone. I know that many of you have been put in that place through health, through circumstance, or what have you, where you are being put in an impossible position where there is no earthly recourse. And God puts us there for our good. So like Paul, we would no longer trust in ourselves. Notice what he says there. So that we would not trust in ourselves. What's the point? The point is that left to ourselves... That's what we want to do. We want to trust in ourselves. We think we're fine. We think that, we can, that we've got this. That we can cope. That we can manage it. Oh, sometimes God brings you to that point where He has to show you that you can't handle it on your own. Finally, faith. Not only does it entail uh, dependence, obedience, But last of all, faith also implies devotion to God on two levels. Devotion to God Himself and devotion to God's Word. That is what true saving faith is all about. True biblical leadership is devoted to God Himself, spiritually, through communion with God. Oh, what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 3? Oh, that I may know Him. Any true biblical leader is devoted to knowing Christ. I've just been reading the little book by Mark Jones, Knowing Christ. It is a phenomenal book. Pastor Lynn and I, we can't stop talking about it. We're being so blessed by it. Um, I think it would be good for our whole church to go through it because it's just it's communion with Christ. Who He is, what He's done. But it's also a communion, or it's also rather a devotion to God's Word. And really, if, if we think about it logically, these are two sides of the same coin. 
and the effect that that has on the sheep. And therefore, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 because I think there sort of brings this whole thing together. Paul says in in Timothy 4, verse 13, 1 Timothy 4, 13, He says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. There's the structure. There's the doctrine. There's the virtue. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. In other words, there was a a supernatural call on Timothy's life such that the eldership... Uh, at some point in his life, confirmed it. And he tells him, in terms of these things, exhorting, teaching, public reading of Scripture, which is just a general way of saying, conducting the, the, the worship service of the church. He says, take pains with these things. Another way to interpret that is, 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 is uh, when he says, take pains with these things, is be in it. He says, be absorbed in these things so that your progress will be evident to all. Isn't that amazing? That was the resolution of, of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had a resolution that he would absorb himself in the Word of God, in the doctrine, in the teaching, to such an extent that his progress would be evident. But look at verse 16, because the leader's devotion has a direct effect on the church. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those that hear you. That's so weighty, isn't it? I mean, Paul is saying you will, by virtue of immersing yourself, in the things of God, in communion and in devotion to God and in devotion to His Word, you will be the means that God uses not only for your salvation as a leader, but for the salvation of your people. There could be no greater honor than to be the contour of God, the saving contour instrument that God uses to provide salvation for people. I tell you, the greatest thing that I could ever hear is that somebody gets saved under my preaching. I had a young lady tell me that once. She said, I came to your church. I understood absolutely nothing. (laughs) I couldn't understand anything that you were saying. Nothing. She said, I kept coming. And I came back. And I came back. And I came back. And she says, and one day I started crying in the pew. She said, because I understood. And I said, praise God, hallelujah. I didn't laugh, but I rejoiced. (laughs) I thought that's such a great, I mean, that's such a great honor just to hear that. That will let me, you know what, that'll that'll keep me going for another 10 years. So you got a testimony, come and share it with me. Don't hold back that testimony. Come and share it with me. It's encouraging. Finally, if there's one incentive for us to imitate godly examples, it would be this. Hope and confidence. Hope and confidence because in imitating them, especially if we look back at the whole life lived of a leader, somebody godly and somebody worthy and somebody that has given us a godly example, it will, it will embolden us And it will infuse us with hope and confidence in those 
things. Simply put, there is a safety in following the example of a godly man or a woman around us. And this, I'm extending the principle of imitation here to, to, to following the example of any godly man or woman, anybody that we can benefit anything spiritual from their example. Kids to their parents, husbands and wives between one another, obviously pastors and members. In this exhortation, we are not just being called to imitate people's personality We are being called to imitate the obedience of their faith, the dependence of their faith, and the devotion of their faith. One last verse for you to go to. 2 Peter chapter 1. One of the things I love about Peter is that he was a failure. One of the things I love about Peter is that he was a wounded shepherd. What I love about Peter is that maybe he didn't have a spotless record. And we all know the failures of Peter. But Peter was reinstated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What a gracious Lord. I mean, Jesus just could have just done away with him. You failed, you apostatized, you denied me, that's it, I'm finished with you, you're finished. You'll never serve in my kingdom again. But Jesus didn't do that. As a matter of fact, Jesus just brought him to a point of emptying himself of all sort of self-dependence And once he got to that point, then he was useful once again for the master. But listen to what Peter says. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent and make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, that's the things that he prescribed. uh, Peter, as a leader, taught these things to his church. And he says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, talk about hope, talk about incentive, talk about confidence. In this way, the entrance into into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Why is it important to look at leaders and to listen to them and to follow the example of their faith, their devotion and their conduct? Because... This is the only safe way forward. This is the way that God's eternal kingdom will be abundantly supplied to us. We need the assurance of that. If you doubt your salvation, you struggle with assurance. The greatest strength that you can have is to go to godly men and women around you and imitate their faith. Surround yourself by godly examples and then do something about it. And in that way, you will have assurance regarding the most important thing of all, which is entrance into God's eternal kingdom. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I understand that as time passes, as trials come in, Father, I understand that with the passage of time, we develop what the Bible calls forgetfulness. And so it is so glorious that your word graciously calls us to remember. And in this instance, Lord, help us as a church to prize biblical models, biblical examples, and to have what 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 a reminder to me personally, to Pastor Lynn, leaders in our church, 
the kind of leadership that you desire. A leadership that provides structure, a leadership that provides doctrine, that provides virtue and example. By your grace and for your glory, we ask, O oh God, that you would give us the kind of church that leaves a legacy, that everyone here would seek to be an example. Example in the family, example in the home, example to the children, example at work, example to friends, family, to neighbors that are watching us. Help us to take our conduct serious, knowing that one day not only will others look at the scope of our life, others will look at the lifetime and will examine what we did. But more importantly, O oh God, you will. You will, look, you will look over our lives. And as much as, as much as it's possible, help us to live in the kingdom of God with no regrets. In Jesus' name, amen.